Alright, alright, so we are here for episode 37 of the Weird is a New Black show. 37 episodes. Lucky 37. That's right, it's a lucky number. Lucky number. <laughs> it is today. It is today. And I'm here today with one of my favorite Philly personalities, Philly people, and filmmakers by the name of Mr. Brian Green, that is green with two E's, which is the only way you can spell, actually the other way is to spell green, but this is the other way to spell green with G-R-E-E-N, so mm-hmm. yeah, so enjoy the, like color. the color. That's <laughs> right. Like the money, baby. Mm-hmm. The money. That's right. G-money. That's right. And I remember um, meeting Brian years ago. We had mutual friends. Because mm-hmm. uh, certain sections, certain scenes in Philly, the scenes, it's just like, it means you're within a small group of people. And our paths had crossed. I'm not sure was it at an event we crossed paths at, or was it at one day? I think I, f- I first met you at Scribe Video Center. Mm, okay, that makes sense. It might have been that, because uh, either that or it was like during a short film you were filming something. It was along those lines. Uh-huh. And I think that we had, also makes sense. <laughs> yeah, because it's just how things work. You know, the creatives in the city, and this is during a time period when. Because when I met you, I think we had Scribe in common because I actually worked with Scribe back in 98. Mm, okay. Um, during one of those, uh, the summer projects for the, the, the youth projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the documentary history project for youth. Yep. I did mine back in 98. Some 20 years since then. I remember like so October will be the 20th anniversary of the, of the showing of it at the African American Museum in Philadelphia. Oh, uh, that's what's up. It was, it's just, but it's kind of gross too, man. I'm like, it's been 20 years, man. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. ugh, ugh. how time flies. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm like, oh. But at least my shirts are fitting now better than they did when I was 13. <laughs> you know, so. It's like, we old as shit. Yo, ain't we, man? <laughs> it's just like, just have to do this reality. I'm like, man. I'm like, so am I getting my AARP card today or tomorrow? Right, right. <laughs> When's it coming in the mail? So, again, homie's a dope filmmaker. Very creative person, and you know I follow this brother on, on Instagram, the social medias, <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you like I admire him because to me he just has the vibe of a free person, mm-hmm. and I love free people, man. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that people are necessarily slaves now, but not in the traditional sense in terms of you know being locked in chains physically mm-hmm. but people are a bit restrained by societal norms mm-hmm. societal norms where we're programmed to reject anything that's new or different and we're programmed to you know do the same right Everything has to be the same because same is safe exactly different is not safe and that leads me to our first question for you, sir. What do you think about titles and labels? Like so societal labels? Yeah, on everything. Because we have labels for relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're monogamous. Mm-hmm. Or then there's non-monogamous. But things just can't be what they are. They have to have a label so people can feel comfortable about it whenever they, they categorize it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people feel like, okay, cool. Well, 
I'm this and they're that, and I need to have this level of separation there so I know what's going on. I can feel comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there are folks out there who say that they don't need to have labels to define who and what they are. Especially when it comes down to the topic of like, um, like sexuality or orientation. Mm-hmm. Like, how important are labels, or do you think we don't need them at all? I guess labels can be helpful sometimes, but for the most part, it just get in the way. I think, because um, everybody is different. You know, we all have similarities, but on you know, for the most part, every single person is different, and what one label might mean to one person uh, means something completely different to the next person. And again, we're just kind of, we're programmed in this society to compartmentalize everything and everything has a little label and everything has its, everything has its place. And I guess it can occasionally be helpful like in terms of like organization, I suppose, but uh, on the most part, they just get in the way. Like they gender labels and gender, Expectations, gender norms, they get in the way. Um, sexual orientation labels uh, can sometimes get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, you know, I, 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 I feel like labels be getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> if labels you be know, getting in the way. They be getting in the way. You know, like life experience is not as black and white as we want it to be. You know what I mean? Like most things live on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, gen- I, I believe that gender lives on a spectrum. I believe that sexual orientation actually lives on a spectrum. You know, even race lives on a spectrum. You know, like you know, it, you know, the further along we get, you know, like just just to say someone is African American sometimes doesn't that doesn't even paint the full picture. Just to say someone is white that doesn't paint the full picture. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But yeah, to put an end cap on it. You know, I feel like labels be getting in the way. <laughs> but interesting you mentioned how, like, race has a wide spectrum because remember, late 90s when uh, Tiger Woods, the it guy, mm-hmm. and people were like, oh, Tiger, you're black. And what he said? I am not black. I am Kablasian. Kabl- <laughs> remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he was, his mom, I think, was Thai. Mm-hmm. His dad was, was black. Mm-hmm. And somebody in his past may have been Caucasian. Right. So he said, I am Kablasian. Kablasian. And everybody laughed. They fried him about that. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, though the title, the, the name was funny as hell. I think corny is the word you're looking for. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but we never, never really knew Tiger to be the coolest guy on the block. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But that title of Kablasian speaks to being like people come from a diverse racial background on the mm-hmm. spectrum. You know, he was part black and he was part Asian. Mm-hmm. And you calling him black in a way downplays half of where he's from. Exactly. His mother and her entire family and where she's from and that experience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, I've, I think about where we are in the world and how progressive we claim to be. Mm-hmm. Yet we have these moments where something doesn't go our way or isn't to our liking. And we revert back to the old ways just like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? So, with you and your life as a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker, mm-hmm. an independent black filmmaker, that's right. Guys, right, have the emphasis on the black. What got you into this world of 
a film in terms of how did you get to the point where you say, you know what, I got stories to tell. I have experiences that I want to share. What got you to that point? I've always been into film since the very beginning. Literally, like, I remember my mom came home when I was, like, nine or ten with, like, one of them old JVC camcorders. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, the family camcorder. And it quickly just became my camcorder. And I just was pretty much shooting everything that moved. <laughs> like the the camera was literally just attached to my hand. And and you know, I come from a family of artists. My mother is a children's book author, uh, Michelle White Green. Mm-hmm. My father's uh, graphic design. Both my father was also into music. So growing up I was into music. I was writing. I had a visual eye. I would do illustration. I, I was into sculpture, you know, I was just into pretty much every everything like my my parents also danced so as a career path and as you know like going to film school you know graduating high school going to film school and choosing film as my major and my career it filmmaking just seemed to be a place where I could combine all of my talents and sensibilities into one medium that kind of involves all those things so like you know, I, I can use my musical ear for, you know, putting together a scene, you know, or scoring something. I've, I've scored a couple of my own things. I could, you know, I use my visual eye for shooting. I use my, my writing for storytelling when, I, when I'm either, like, writing an original script of my own or I'm adapting something that someone else has written. And it just, filmmaking just seemed to be the place. You know, for, for me, as an artist, you know, I'm just kind of, like, all over the place and I'm always doing something new. And... Filmmaking just seemed to be that one medium where I could just combine everything together. Now, what is your approach to writing? Because I've always seen different writers say, well, sometimes in the coffee shop an idea hits me, or Mm -hmm. I could be riding a horse and I see a tree in my head and got a plot. (laughs) So how do you go about creating your works? Writing? Yeah. Writing is scary. (laughs) So when I have an idea, it has to to go down somewhere on paper, like literally the minute it comes into my mind because I will forget it just like that. So I'm constantly taking notes all the time. I have like an an idea for a funny sketch or a concept for a script or something like that. I just write it down, get it on paper somewhere so I can come back to it later. In terms of putting together a project like writing, like putting together a screenplay. That's the kind of thing where like, it really takes discipline to really just sit down and get it done. And when I write like a large scale project, it's usually like, I like put it off and put it off. and like, I don't like, I don't want to get into that world yet. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. No, no. And then finally I sit my ass down somewhere and literally I, I get in front of the computer or whatever and nothing else happens until that that screenplay is done. Like most of most of my screenplays I write it in like a week or something. Like I ain't thinking about food, I ain't thinking about work, I ain't thinking about nothing else. Like I sit my ass down and I don't leave until that screenplay is done. And I come out I come out of it with a finished screenplay with like fucking mountain man beard and like I've been sitting in the, like just drinking coffee nonstop mm. and and you know, I kinda I don't like going into that world, but it's necessary, you know, that 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 particular world of creation, you know, is necessary. And writing, for some reason, it doesn't feel the same way with some of the other things I do. Like, for instance, like if I'm if I'm working on a sketch or a painting, you know, I'll do a little here, you know, leave, come back, do a little bit more, you know, leave, come back, you know, check it out, 
walk around the block or like do something else come back to it I feel like with it, even with editing when I'm editing when we shot something and I'm editing a project usually I can do a little bit here and then go back come back again cut this together leave do something else come back work on the sound design da, 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 da. but with writing it's like I literally I can't budge until it's done and it's does that make any sense yeah because because mm-hmm. this is why I asked the question about titles and labels mm-hmm because I feel like just calling you a filmmaker is doing you a disservice. Because it's, it's deeper than just, okay, making a film. Like you say, you're into it as far as sound designing or scoring, mm-hmm. whether it be writing. And I know that even when it comes down to the world of being a cinematographer for your films, mm-hmm. that's a world in itself. Right. Like, I guess you have to figure out, like, in your mind, do you see the visuals? Then do you go out and try to find, like, references of what you're trying to do and then put it out there? Like, how, how do you approach it from a cinematographer? Okay. And that, that's great. I'm glad we're talking about this. So, in the world of filmmaking, my, my strong suits are writing, directing, and editing. Okay. Depending upon the project, there have been projects I've done in the past where I just do everything myself and I'm just like a one-man band. Mm. But with large-scale projects like the Bicycle Vignettes or the film I had in festivals this year, uh, Recurrence Blot, The Family Circle, that is where, you know, when, you, when, when I have a, like a large-scale project like that and I have to delegate tasks, then I usually have a cinematographer on my team. And Kevin Martin, who uh, he was a couple years under me at Drexel. We both went to Drexel. So we've been working together a decade now. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of graduated in 2007, eight, nine. <laughs> so yeah. But yeah, he was a couple years under me in the cinema and television uh, program at Drexel. And every time I have a large scale project with a big, big enough budget, he's my cinematographer. He is amazing. And, and we just, we've worked together so often that he just kind of like knows what I want. Uh, he shoots on film and video, even, even in, the, in the bicycle vignettes. I don't know if you, did you ever see the whole thing? No, break it down. What was that uh, bicycle vignette about? Was it? Because uh, now, did you work with Philly Cam with that one? Not directly with Philly Cam. There, okay. was, a, there was a point at which I was going to air it at Philly Cam, but okay. then uh, decided against it because I wanted to have, I, I wanted to premiere it at Black Star rather than premiering it on Philly Cam. Okay. So I premiered it at Black, in Black Star uh, 2017. So basically, the Philadelphia Bicycle Vignette story is a screenplay that, I, original screenplay that I wrote. Again, I wrote it in like two days. It was like a... 45 minute screenplay. <laughs> that was it was one of those moments where I just I sat my ass down. I had ideas. I was constantly like coming up with ideas for sketches and then finally just sat down and wrote this 45 page script in like 2 or 3 days. Wow. Like I wasn't eating. I wasn't <laughs> like, you know. And it's ba- it's a comedy. It's kind of like a screwball comedy where we hop around from character to character and it's just basically like a bunch of like a slice of life out of a bunch of different people's lives in Philadelphia over the course of one day. It's broken up into like little like four or five minute scenes. It's kind of like you can almost look at it like sketch comedy a la, you know, Saturday Night Live or like Dave Chappelle, but with more of a cinematic edge to it because every every sketch that we shot, we shot it specifically, we shot it on a different style of camera some of some of the scenes were shot on film uh black and white film or color film ectochrome uh i think we shot one scene on an iphone i can't remember now 
<laughs> and just like yeah, every scene we shot on a different camera wow. because I, we wanted we wanted each scene to have its own look to it and its own feel to it. And what's also funny about that is that I wrote this script in 2009. It was actually my last. I wrote the screenplay as a independent study for Drexel. It was my the last thing I did there to just get those last credits out of the way. So I wrote it. Last thing I did at Drexel. Wrote it in 2009. We started shooting it in 2010, and we did not finish shooting it until 2015. And that's because you know every time we shot, you know I wanted to do it right. I wanted to pay everybody. So every time we shot, I'm paying like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different people, catering, paying locations, paying actors, paying crew, and so basically I would just and I'm also working on my own, doing film video of my own, you know, I was working at Scribe at the time in the office for them and also teaching for them. And I was doing a lot of freelance for UPenn back then, uh, the documentaries in the law program, Regina Austin in the law school. So basically, and, and also just taking in like random freelance stuff, just shooting concerts and church events and da 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 da. What, what basically whatever came my way. So right. anytime I anytime I got like some kind of a big freelance payoff, I'd be like, okay, I got some money, and then I'll just call Kevin up, and I'll call all the actors. You know, what, all right, two weeks. What can we put together in two weeks? All right, let's. We haven't shot this scene yet. Let's do this. So <laughs> that's basically how we did it for like. Five, five years, like over the course of five years, where you, you know, typically when you have a large scale project, you try to shoot everything at once. But with this one, and also just because of the, the type of project it was, since every scene had to look different, you know, it kind of lent itself to that process. I wish it hadn't taken five years, but I'm glad that it's done. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, like, there, do you remember, you remember Call Fortified? Yeah. Yeah. What's really, one of the really funny, happy accidents that happened was they play, you know, just like random street boy, like street thugs type types. They're in the first scene in, the, which we shot in 2010, they were all still in high school, right? Wow. And they're also in the final scene of the film. Mm-hmm. And they grown ass men in the final scene of the film. And <laughs> cause we shot that in 2015. Like, right. it's kind of like we shot the first scene first and the last scene last. Which also wasn't particularly on purpose. It's just like that's just kind of like the way it happened. Right. And in the world of the film, they don't necessarily have to be the same character. You know what I mean? They're just like uh, random street types. Right. But it is kind of funny if you know them and see the fact that you know they're in high school in this one scene, and then like at the end of the same day, they're clearly older. <laughs> Grown-ass men, as you said. Right, right. Kind of like inside joke. <laughs> nice. So with that film, I want to give you congratulations on having that film in the Black Star Film Fest in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to congratulate you on the one that was entered in this year, 2018. Mm-hmm. The title was The Recurrence Plot, The Family Circle. Mm-hmm. So I remember seeing different pictures, of course, on IG. Mm-hmm. Right, It was a a park scene, I believe, were you with the woman on the bench? Was that Jessica Jordan? It was, uh-huh. Yeah. So I saw that. I said, okay, cool. I wonder what this film was about. Then I saw words like Afrofuturism was being associated with it. Mm-hmm. So what was that film about? So basically, are you familiar with uh, Rashida Phillips? Yeah, because mm-hmm. uh, same circle. You know, right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Philly circles. <laughs> yes. And I think I met her for the first time at your party. 
we oh, had on yeah. 50th and Spruce. Yeah, yeah, the body painting party. Yes, and that was 20, please tell me that was 2010, 2010 to 2011. Something Ooh. like that. Yeah, yeah, it was a while ago, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those were the good old days, huh? Weren't they? Yeah, so Rashida and I have been good friends for a while, probably also about a decade now. <laughs> and she was actually writing, so she she self-published a novel, Recurrence Plot, and uh, the, the full title is Recurrence Plot and Other Time Travel Tales. So she was actually writing that while I was writing the bicycle vignettes, mm-hmm. and we would like send each other drafts and stuff, so it was kind of cool that we were like working on these two big projects at the same time. She published Recurrence Plot in 2014, I want to say, or 2013, and I read it, and I was like, mm, yeah, I want to make a film project out of this, mm-hmm. and and she agreed, and we just, we talked about it, and talked about it, and mm-hmm. talked about it, and yeah, we got to work together, we got to work together, and it just never happened, it never happened. Until it did. (laughs) So basically the family circle is the first chapter of Recurrence Plot. And it kind of sets up the backstory of the main character of Recurrence Plot. Her name is Capri. So we see Capri as a child. We get the backstory of Capri's mother and Capri's grandmother. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what the family circle is about. So Mm -hmm. I adapted the family circle into a... 10 or 11 page screenplay mm-hmm. sent it to Rashida in 2016 for her birthday that's another thing our birthdays are like she she's exactly one year and one day older than me okay. so we got back to back birthdays so like 2016 for her birthday I sent her the screenplay and she was like yes I love it yes let's do it so wrote it in 2016 and then wrote it in 2016 while at the same time I was had just finished shooting the bicycle vignettes and was working on post-production for that. Mm-hmm. So wrote it, put it on the back burner, and then I wasn't ready to start shooting Recurrence Plot until early this year. I w- so in Black, in Black Star of 2017, I was in the same film block with Asli Duncan. She's, a, she's another Philadelphia filmmaker, very talented Philadelphia filmmaker. Uh, she lives in West Philly, and she's working. She's uh, last year and this year completed a web series called Resistance, the Battle of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. which is basically, you know, takes place in Philadelphia. It's in like 10 or 15 years into the future, kind of like a dystopian view of Philadelphia or what Philadelphia might look like in 10 or 15 years, where we're basically like in a police state and, you know, activism is very controlled and, you know, like secret police and and it's, I don't know, it's, it's intense. I worked on that with her, was doing, I was on the crew for that, Gaff Electric, and on her crew, I met Sara Zia Ibrahimi, who was producing, and I, I believe she was also AD, I think, uh, on Resistance. So, uh, you know, I met her, and then we, and she remembered me from Black Star of that year, 2017, and, and she was like, you know, what's your next project? And I was like, well, actually, um, I wrote this screenplay, uh, I adapt, adapted uh, Rashida's you know, novel, the first chapter of a novel into her screenplay. And it's been sitting around for like a year. And now that the bike vignettes are finally finished, I really want to just jump into that and like get the ball rolling on that. And she was like, well, 
you want some help? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. So Sarah and I, we started talking about this uh, late last year, like November, December of last year, put together a plan, like a fundraising plan. We launched a GoFundMe in January of this year for 10 grand. So I knew, so the one thing uh, about the family circle was just I reading it in the book and then adapting it into a screenplay, I just knew it would be a fairly simple shoot, you know, complete stark contrast opposite of the bike vignettes where I had like 50 million different characters and actors and like, you know, so like the family circle, I knew it would be like 10 or 15 minutes long. Um, I knew there were only four or five characters and two or three locations. So I was like, we can do this pretty, pretty quick and probably pretty cheaply. So we launched an Indiegogo for 10 grand. I knew that we could shoot everything and pay everybody for five grand bare minimum. I knew that eight grand would be perfect. And I knew that 10 grand would be like, wow, yeah, you know? So we we launched it for ten grand. It's still going actually. GoFundMe backslash the family circle. If you're if you want to you know check us out and donate, that would be great. So between so like from January to March or from January to I, we we raised about six fifty in like a month and a half. So once we hit that six mark, I was like, okay, we can do this now. Mm -hmm. So we shot it over three days in the tail end of February this year. And my plan was specifically to flip it around as quickly as I could and get it uh, into Blackstar in time for the deadline, for the March 30th deadline. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And it got in as a rough cut. And then I had another couple of weeks for me to like tighten up the rough cut and, you know, get the music together and, and... Got in <laughs> and premiered at Black Star this year. That's ill. And it's just like such a blessing to go from one project where it took me five years to get everything done and it was just like so epic in scope and so many people involved and it just felt like I felt like it would never be finished to go from a project like that to then turn around and, you know, complete this project, which was just like so simple, shot over three days, you know, only a handful of characters and a handful of crew and it was just done just like that <laughs> ain't that how life works out sometimes bro mm -hmm. so what's what's been the reception for that project it's been i feel like it's i feel like the audience has been receiving it pretty well occasionally there's been some mixed emotions so basically the the story of the family circle uh you're basically we're basically dragging i wanted to specific uh specifically wanted to drag the audience through the trauma of capri's backstory that's what the purpose of the the, the story is mm -hmm. and i adapted it pretty much verbatim to the way it was written in the book and without giving you haven't seen it right not yet so i don't want to give too much away uh, cool but basically you know i i wrote it the way exactly it was in the book and assembled the edit exactly the way you know i wrote the screenplay and Unless you know that this is just kind of like a preamble or like an opening to a larger story, and if, you, if you're just looking at this, you don't know who Rashida Phillips is or you don't know the story of Recurrence Plot and you're just looking at it, it, it ends on a really horrible note. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it, and so once the edit was completed and everything, I was just kind of sitting there like, damn, this is, this is dark. This is really, really dark. And had a moment where I was like, how, how can I, 
instill in the audience beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not the end. Like, the end is not the end. The end of this short film is not the end. This is just the beginning of a long story about Capri and her own time travel experiments and everything. So that's why, you know, you saw the photos of us shooting, uh, me and Derek and Jessa shooting in Washington Square. So basically, in the family circle, you only see Capri as a child, right? So I cast Jessa as the adult version of Capri with the hopes that we'll be able to expand uh, the full novel into either a web series or a feature film. Nice. So what we shot last month in in uh, Washington Square Park was kind of like a screen test. And also, once I put the edit together, it just may be the, the opening of the next, what could be the next episode of Recurrence Plot, which is called Experimental Time Order. Mm-hmm. So basically, in the family circle, you you see Capri and her mother and her uh, and her grandmother, and they have moments of time travel, and kind of like you you go back and you see the backstory. In in experimental time order is when Capri, as an adult, you know she she grows up. She doesn't repeat the cycle of destruction of like the family circle is basically about cycles of destruction, cycles of self destruction. Uh, repeating the mistakes of history and also learning from the, the mistakes of history, uh, you know, uh, not repeating the mistakes of your ancestors. And um, so Capri grows up and she doesn't repeat what her mother and her grandmother did. And I'm, try- I'm trying to like dance around uh, the thing so I don't give too much away. Oh, gotcha. Spoiler alert. Um, she grows up, she becomes successful independent, you know, young, successful, independent. She, she's, she's a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and she's working on, like, a big expose story uh, on a Philadelphia school. And she stumbles upon literature having to deal with time travel and kind of, like, takes it home, and she's intrigued by it, and she begins to, she begins to do little time travel experiments of her own. And that's basically, that's basically what Recurrence Plot winds up being about. It's, it's Capri and the time travel experiments that she conducts while she's trying to get to the bottom of the, like, break, break this story. It's like large con- conspiracy theory thing that's happening with a, a Philadelphia school. So what we shot in the park, I just, like, I just, I really kind of hated the, well, not hated, but, like, felt some kind of way about how the family circle ended, even though that's exactly the way it ends in the book, and that's exactly the way I wrote it into the screenplay. But to sit there and watch the film and kind of like put myself in the place of an audience member who doesn't know anything about the story mm-hmm. is, is, is dark. So what I, so I resolved to, I was like, okay, well, what if we see Capri as an adult at the end? So that, that'll instill in the audience the, the fact that, you know, Capri grows up and she doesn't repeat the mistakes of her personal history. Right. Right. So that's kind of what that was. So the way the film edit stands right now, that scene is not included, but the next time I work on it, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to add just a flash of, like, right at the tail end of the family circle so that we see grown-up Capri. 
basically. And then also at the same time, just continue uh, shooting Experimental Time Order, which is the next chapter in the book. Wow. <laughs> it's heavy mm-hmm. because you think about families. Mm-hmm. And you heard the saying how, like, you pay for it, the sins of the father. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, the sins of the mother. You know, how sometimes we tend to do the same thing that our parents did, grandparents did. We, know, we might not even know that we're doing it. Exactly. But it's so ingrained in us because by what, what we saw... And there are people out there who say, yo, I'll never be like so-and-so or that person. Mm-hmm. Then down the line, when you find yourself in that same exact situation, mm-hmm. you do it. So that's, that's pretty dope. And I'm looking forward to actually checking it out. Is it, can I find it anywhere out and about? Like it's on Vimeo or? Uh, yeah, it's on Vimeo. It hasn't been officially distributed yet, but okay. um, I, I have a password protected link that I've just been like sending out selectively to people. So I can definitely send you that. I need that. Yep. Yes. I'll, I'll watch it tonight. Mm-hmm. And then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but on point. So my friend, we discussed Afrofuturism in the film, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a contrast from our off, off-camera conversation. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely hilarious. So uh, for another show. Indeed. We definitely will. That's a whole different show. Right? Oh, yes, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a life. Mm-hmm. It's a life and times. We discussed this, this film, Recurrence Plot, A Family Circle, was based in the Afrofuturism genre. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen a lot of people talk about Afrofuturism over the past, I want to say, 10 years. Mm-hmm. I've seen certain people within our circle, how big it is and how real it is. Mm-hmm. You know, they tend to mention the one author all the time. She, I guess she passed fairly recently. Octavia Butler. Yes. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have a representation of Afrofuturism in our community and just in society, period? Oh, it's very important. It's very important in the ways that we need to tell our own, our own stories and be represented in media in any other genre. Mm-hmm. You know? So I kind of have, I have mixed emotions about Afrofuturism as a term. Because it was a, a term that was coined in 1993 by a white man, you know, and it's just another. It, you could you could look at it two different ways. It's like you could look at a look at it as us celebrating our own stories, or telling our own stories, celebrating our own culture. But you can also look at it as you know the the backlash, natural reaction of the fact that you know. Science fiction has been a genre for over 100 years at this point, and it's been a white man's world. You know, like, you know, you have your writers like H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Um, Wells. Wells, right? You know, white men and speculative fiction has, all, has been a white man's world for such a long time, just like everything else has been a white man's world for such a long time. And it's kind of like, you know, we just look at that and, you know, you look at like the, you know, the you know, cheesy movies from like the 1950s and 60s and, you know, your Star Wars and your Star Trek and like black, you know, people of color have always just been like sidekicks and like side characters and yep. if if we're even included at all in any capacity. And so it's kind of like, you know, we're looking at that like, oh, okay, so you don't, you don't see us in the future? <laughs> Fine, well, we, we don't see y'all in our future either. And so that's kind of like what what Afrofuturism is and why, why it's important, you know, and it, it's kind of like, I don't feel like we should look at writers like Octavia Butler as such an oddity mm-hmm. 
but we kind of do just based upon the fact that you know you don't have a lot of you know black women science fiction writers you know and so when one when one comes around like that it's kind of it kind of is they appear almost as an oddity and that's why i don't know that's why uh rashida phillips's work is so important she's a writer and an activist and a recurrence plot is just another I know, it's another incredible work that deals with Afrofuturism and time travel, mm-hmm. and you know you don't see, you don't see you don't see you don't see stuff like that too often. And I feel like the more we see of it, the better. And I feel like it is it is becoming it is becoming more of a thing, especially within the past uh, five to ten years. And that's great, and it needs to continue to happen. Representation. Mm-hmm. Now, you thought you mentioned it. And I sat here thinking about it. Lando Carrizian was like the only black dude in the first three Star Wars that came mm-hmm. out. Then there was the uh, the prequels that came out. Mm-hmm. And that only black person I saw in that film, that I can remember, was Samuel Jackson. Right. Mm-hmm. He got, of course, he got taken out. And then you had Jar Jar Binks. But again, I don't want to say he was a black character, <laughs> but he had a black voice. Yep. And hey. You know what I'm saying? I guess he might have been like uh, your, your typical, hey, happy Jamaican maybe in the mm-hmm. movie. Who knows? Jar Jar Binks, Misa. You know what I'm saying? Just wild shit. And, and Jar Jar Binks is the reason why I stopped paying attention to all the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many reasons, I guess. <laughs> and my man wearing a goofy outfit too, man. Right. <laughs> it's craziness. Basically. And, and then you look at the last Star Wars that was coming out. I think this will be the final one. I mean, of this this last trilogy. Mm-hmm. And you got um, John Boyega's character who plays Finn. Mm. And I think he is the only black character that I've seen in this latest trilogy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the one character voiced by Lupita, but like besides that, he's the only physical one I've seen. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the rebel one that came out, Rogue One, and you had Forrest Whitaker. Mm, yeah. But like, why is that? I, I'm, I'm thinking about that right now. Like, why is that just the one person rules? Like, this, right. You look at Star Trek. Yeah, Uhuru, right? Mm-hmm. Say her name correctly. Because someone I think uh, on Living Color was like, Uhuru. you. was like, what'd you say? <laughs> I said, Uhuru. That was your right. name, right? <laughs> and, it's, uh, and then you had Next Generation, you had Sky LaForge. Mm-hmm. You know, shout out to my main man, uh, you know, Reading Rainbow. I'll take, right. I'll take my word for it. Dent, mm-hmm. dent, uh, <laughs> Devar Burton. And, but, take a look. Yeah, it's, it's in, in a, a book. book. It's reading rainbow. rainbow. You ever hear DMX version of that shit, that song? No. <laughs> so they, it's like, DMX? Yeah, it made a version of that song, DMX on it. Uh, it's like reading rainbow. What? It's like just, it's just, <laughs> it's just him barking and like yelling like ad libs throughout the song. Uh-huh. It's, it's insane. But I think that representation is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Especially now more than ever, so we can show our faces. Mm-hmm. Like sci fi, people are like, what you say? You're off in the future, we just disappear? Right. Like, we're here. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Probably the ones building fucking ships. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we're... It, it, it's, it's just, wow. The stories of Octavia Butler and what Rashida's doing, again, is very important because you have to have these moments of being like, yo, we're in the mix, too. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we're not just secondary characters. That's right. Where they got holding a, holding a fish tank in the back. <laughs> like, you see him in the credits. Uh-huh. Got holding fish tank. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Rod, Rodney Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So you got you to definitely have that in the mix. It's like, you don't want to include us in your stories, so why should we include y'all in our stories? Right. Yeah. Nigga started talking about reverse racism. 
<laughs> well, my man, Chris Rock said he's talking about reverse racism, sideways racism. <laughs> Upside down racism. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> and that even goes down to the whole idea with Black Lives Matter and people are like, no, all lives matter. It's like, motherfuckers, we ain't saying that. Mm-hmm. We're just saying that when it comes down to us, it's like, we don't matter. Mm-hmm. We're saying that we matter too. Right. The fact that we even have to point the fact out that Black Lives Matter is indicative of the fact that black lives don't matter in this country as much as they should. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. And we had the, the last situation with Botham Jean, who was the gentleman who was shot and killed in his own apartment by the Dallas police officer mm-hmm. who had the story. Oh, I thought he was in my space. What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't know where you live? <laughs> the hell. And, the fact to be, and for that to be the story is just... It's laughable and yet it's tragic all at the same time because mm-hmm. it's not to be, you know, funny, but it's another reoccurring plot. Yeah. There mm-hmm. you go, you know? Business as usual in capitalist America. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I watch shows like Atlanta, yes. you know. I love Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I saw the movie uh directed by Boots Riley, which was Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't caught that one yet. It was definitely a punk film. Mm. You know, like in terms of the, the aesthetics. Okay. I, I enjoyed it when it came out. You know, so I watched, you know, Terrence Nance's HBO show, Random Acts of Flyness. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen the envelope being pushed. Where do I find that? I need to see that. Where do you. Where so do you that's, it's that? on, that's on HBO, mm-hmm. but you can find the first episode for free on YouTube. Oh, word. Okay. And that episode is a good one because uh, a woman I used to see all the time in Philly until she moved to New York. Do, you know, Doreen Garner? Doreen was like, she made like dope stuff. Art sculptures and all that. Sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. If you see her, if you see the first episode, she's on that one. Oh, word. That, okay. that's, that's the Terrence. So, you know, we have all these different shows and all that. All these characters representing, like, different shades of blackness because we all know blackness is not monolithic. That's right. So how do you feel about this new era of filmmaking or this new era, these, these different versions of blackness being presented in the media? I feel like it's great, and I feel like we're, every day we're getting closer and closer to what the situation should be. You know, I feel like we're stepping out of an era where black people, black males in particular, have just been represented very poorly in the media, in the news, in movies, and and I feel and it's queer people of color uh, also. And I feel like we're finally getting to a place where the floodgates feel like they're being opened, and we're we're getting the representation in media that we're that we aren't entitled to. I guess if that makes any sense, and you know we still have ways to go, but we've we've made I don't know there's been leaps and bounds in the past five to ten years, and I really I, I really like that I'm alive today and I'm I'm directing today I'm a filmmaker today like it, it's, I feel like we're in a good place right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like your work is adding on to that to the narrative, mm-hmm. just to have these voices. I guess at some point in time I spoke to a friend of mine about this that viewed as like the alternative blackness. Mm-hmm. That's my last show that I had with uh, Uncool Chuck. He we discussed how there was like a version of like, uncool, like alternative blackness that was out and about, as opposed to whatever the mainstream depicted us, mm-hmm. how they made it seem. So to see that we're in a zone now where it's all coming together is amazing. Yeah. In your time as a filmmaker, all the things that you've ever seen, what film has like been a major source of inspiration to you? If not a film, but a filmmaker. My, that's 
that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> okay. um, but my f- my favorite filmmaker that has influenced me the most visually, mm-hmm. I would have to say, if we're talking about like lifetime, all-time favorite, mm-hmm. I would have to say Michel Gondry. So Michel Gondry, he started out directing music videos. Yeah. He would do videos for like Beck and The White Stripes and Daft Punk. And so that's how he, ac- he actually originally began as a musician. He was in a band. He had a band he was a drummer then he started he got into film and he started directing music videos and then he went on to direct feature films like uh human nature uh, eternal sunshine of the spot was mine love that film yeah that's one of my all-time favorite movies right there and he's he's been a big influence on me visually because just just the way he does camera tricks he doesn't rely too heavily upon you know cgi and post-production stuff he does he does effects right there in shooting with with lighting and timing and, and even like in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind you know you're like you turn around and like walls are disappearing and you know per like perspective is all over the place and things are small that should be big and big that should be small and I just I really enjoy what he does visually and it I feel like it looks better because he he isn't relying on fancy post-production gimmicks like green screen and and you know CGI and stuff like that so like visually I feel like he's he's still kind of like my all-time favorite I don't I don't know what he's doing right now I haven't seen anything Knew about him recently. I saw a film he did a couple uh, of years ago, Mood Indigo. Yeah, I need to catch that. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was an interesting one. But like, mm-hmm. did, he, did he do that Fiona Apple video? Sounds about right. Well, Which like, one? She was like, she was in the room. And all you saw was a spotlight on different bodies and stuff. It was mm-hmm. like. Oh, you mean the her older video? Yeah, it was like kind of like. criminal? It might be because kind of like sexual in nature the uh-huh. video was. But it was like, it was shot. It was just an amazing mm-hmm. vid. I like he did he did commercials too. Mm-hmm. He, he like he did this Polaroid commercial for, for like in Japan or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the way it was shot it was just amazing. It was just you thought it's back to camera tricks. Mm-hmm. You thought it was like some CGI shit. No, it was just all how he shot it and how he edited it. And I was just like, this shit is amazing. Mm-hmm. Cause I got one of his uh, I got this DVD. Uh, it's like collection of different like video directors. Mm-hmm. And I got his, and I said, "Yo, this is it." I think fine. I might have had that same collection actually. Yes, and it was just fascinating, like going, like when you listen to the director's cam- commentary, and he would mm-hmm. talk about the different stuff that he did. And I just remember, like in like high school and like in my early years in college, I would just pretty much just like see if I could pull the same stuff off mm-hmm. that he did on my own. Like I remember he um, in this one Beck video, he had he went through it shot by shot and explain how he did this and that and I remember he he has this one shot where Beck is walking down the street and his his shoes are in front of him mm-hmm. walking on their own it's kind of like he's following his shoes and all he did was with some fishing line and he, he tied his shoes with about like one or two feet of slack mm-hmm. with some fishing line and then had Beck walk backwards down the street so that he's actually he's walking backwards and he's pulling his shoes, right? And oh. then you take that that film clip, played in reverse, and then it just looks like your shoes are walking in front of you magically. That's like, ew. Just like I I just really enjoy stuff like that. You know what I mean? And so like I copied that and mm. uh, see if I could do it, and I did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's ill. But that's what I, that's what I used to do in my free time in my teens. <laughs> but that's how you get. That's how you get good at at, at your craft, at mm-hmm. experimenting. Because I think he even did uh, Ben John Malkovich, didn't he? 
Actually, no, that was Spike Jones. Oh, Spike, oh, Spike, yeah. I'm sorry, Spike Jones mm-hmm. getting too confused. But that's yeah. another, yeah, that's another uh, favorite director of mine. Because Spike also started doing, he started with uh, music videos. Because he did the um, a Far Side video, right? Yeah, the, uh-huh. um, where everything's going in reverse. You drop, yeah, yeah. drop, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh huh. Yeah, man. Yeah, but that's it's all the same circle. And actually, my favorite screenwriter is Charlie Kaufman. I don't know if you know him, but he wrote the screenplay for Eternal Sunshine at the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. and he also wrote the screenplay for Being John Malkovich. Didn't and he do the one? God, because of an A adaptation. Yes, he wrote that one too. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And that's that's like my. It's it's funny. Like you don't usually have as a screenwriter. You don't usually have. You don't usually make a name for yourself as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He's usually just like more of like a union type job. And but like he's one screenwriter that made himself famous by being a screenwriter. <laughs> you know, which is kind of hard to find. Because there's a filmmaker that. I love because he did because he's I can tell you might be in a band too, mm-hmm. but he made films like from the like guess mid eighties throughout the nineties and two thousands. He did Ghost Dog, he <laughs> did uh, was it was it called Ghost Dog? Yeah, it was Ghost Dog. He did Dead Man with Johnny Depp, the Last Love Was Left Alive, oh. Limited of Control. That's my main. Oh name. yeah, uh, uh, Jim Jarmusch. Yes, yeah, that is my main man for yeah, life. That's another one of my favorites. Favorite directors right there. Because, dude, he, because um, Midnight Train, it was like set in Memphis. He had all like the blues guys down there, mm-hmm. but it was told in different perspectives. Limits of Control was dope. It's just because the writing and how it was shot is amazing. His last one was Patterson. Right. Mm-hmm. Patterson uh, was good. It was good. Mm-hmm. This is a bus driver named Patterson, lives in Patterson. Mm-hmm. He's a poet. <laughs> Yo, I love it. And I love like his, how his wife was this eccentric, but, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. But the, but, but the, they still work together perfectly. Yeah, because mm-hmm. like the idea how she played with the idea about being black and white was mm-hmm. how your life being black and white, but how she just twisted it around each time. Mm-hmm. I love that shit. Is there's nothing like dope filmmaking? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see Spike's recent one? Which one? The black Klansman. No. You see that one? Uh. Uh-uh. Your Black Klansman came out last. Was it last month? Month and a half ago. And that was about the the officer who posed as a Klansman to infiltrate him. Oh, it's a documentary? Based on a true story. It's a, it's a movie, but oh, yeah. Okay. Starring uh, Denzel's son, John David Washington. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. I need to be taking notes out here. Yeah, um, <laughs> my supposed to be playing downtown mm-hmm. uh, at the Ritz East, because that's where I go for all my films now. Yeah. All the Ritz theaters, because the indie films is where to go. But I get kind of annoyed. Mm-hmm. To be honest, because I feel like a lot of indie films tell the same hipster stories over and over again, yeah. and like, and again, like, there's those films where it's like one or two black people in there, mm-hmm. and they all look like they were frontmen for TV on the radio. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, uh-huh. it's that look that they have, and I love TV on the radio, but mm-hmm. or it look like that. What's that one comedian? Kamal Bell, mm. like you know, a certain look. The hipster black dude. Mm-hmm. They got at least had one of them dudes in there. Yeah, I'm like, and, and again, I'm like, yo, we don't, all of us don't look like that either, yeah. you know, but again, I representation mean, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens with every counter culture movement, like, you know, it's it's new and it's fresh, and then once enough people glom onto it, it becomes yet another format, you know. Right. Becomes um, reappropriated. <laughs> and then, you know, the, and then the counterculture comes up with something else new, and mm-hmm. It's recycled. Yep. Mm-hmm. Pound to the masses. Mm-hmm. Well, my friend, I want to say thank you for coming by to the Weird is New Black show. Mm-hmm. 
because, sir. Thank you for having me. <laughs> represented, you know, the weird and the black and the new and the the. <laughs> and the the. I can't forget the the. And maybe the is, too. <laughs> maybe that's going too far. <laughs> but, yeah, Brian Green is an excellent representation of someone who marches to the beat of their own drum. He's creative. He is a creator. And you need to go and support his shit when it's out there, okay? So if you need to see the bicycle vignette, go find it and go watch it, okay? Mm-hmm. And this new joint, the reoccurrence plot, the family circle, damn it, when you come out there, when you see it, better go watch it. <laughs> and if you can, still support it via the GoFundMe, which is GoFundMe.com backslash the family circle. Yep. There you go. Yeah, GoFundMe backslash uh, family circle. And then uh, you can check out my work at Vimeo backslash GreenBriano. Vimeo.com backslash GreenBriano. Yep. So it's Green Brian, letter O, correct? That's right. And Brian is spelled B-R-Y-A-N? B-R-Y-A-N, yep. Right. B-R-Y-A-N, G-R-E-E-N. That's right. And the O stands for Oliver. <laughs> oh, shit, you were Oliver? My, yeah, my, I was almost uh, Oliver Winslow Green the third, and my mom was like, No! <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but my full name. And actually, um, I've just recently started. I switched over. So my official director name is now Brian Oliver Green. You know, it sounds a little bit more. Uh, yes. Yeah. I'd like to have some uh, hors d'oeuvres, please, <laughs> while I'm watching my film. It's got a little bit more of a ring to it, you know. Yeah. Brian Oliver Green. B-O-G. Bog. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, I like acronyms. I'm out here, man. Yeah, so check that out. My main man's in the house. Check out his work. He's someone to watch. His work speaks for itself. And he has cool hair. Thank you. Facts. I wish I ain't working up here, bro. And also my YouTube channel is also uh, youtube.com backslash greenbriano. So it's a Vimeo backslash greenbriano, YouTube backslash greenbriano. Check him out. Mm-hmm. Don't be a sucker. <laughs> that's all I have to say but seriously peace out to y'all catch y'all next time with this new black show we are out peace